Biathlon is a unique Olympic event. It challenges participants with opposing athletic endeavors in a singular competition. It combines the heart-pumping aerobic aspects of cross-country skiing matched with the intense focus of precision marksmanship. Two diametrically opposing forces testing every ounce of physical and mental strength of the athletes. Welcome to Heartbeat, the U.S. Biathlon Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Kelly. With each episode, Heartbeat brings you insights into this fascinating sport. We're just a few weeks away from the Olympic Winter Games in Beijing. The U.S. Biathlon team is set and ready to head to China for the 17-day Olympics. It will be fun to watch on NBC. But before we head off to Beijing, in this episode of Heartbeat, we want to take a look back in time. And by back, I mean all the way back to the origin of our sport. One of the great legends of biathlon leadership over the last half century has been Art Stegen. As an athlete beginning with the U.S. Army in the early 70s, to his role as an Olympic coach in 1980 at Lake Placid, and to his volunteer and board roles for decades, Art Stegen really has been the heartbeat of the sport in America. Art's 2019 book, Unique and Unknown, The Story of Biathlon in the United States, is an amazing resource chronicling every little detail of how our sport has evolved. Today we're going back to the very origins of skiing and biathlon, a thousand years ago in Scandinavia. We'll talk about how skis and bows and arrows were vital to existence in northern latitudes. We'll also look at how what we know today as biathlon emerged first as an event known as military patrol in the first Winter Olympics at Chamonix in 1924. And we'll dive into the evolution of the formats that we know so well today. A little trivia question. Did you know that at one point, biathlon events had three different shooting distances in each race? Or that the range at one point was standardized at 150 meters. It's a fascinating talk with the man who has dutifully kept our sports history alive and well-documented. Now let's join Art Stegen on this episode of Heartbeat as we take a look back at the origins of biathlon. And we are in for a treat today on Heartbeat. Uh, this is Tom Kelly, and I am with Art Stegen, our Art coming to us from his home in New Paltz, New York. And how's your how's your winter been there so far? Have you had a little snow? We've had very little this year so far, Tom, and we're all all depressed about that. Well, don't get too depressed. Uh, we have the Olympics coming up right now, and there's a lot of excitement gathering around the world. U.S. Biathlon has had some uh, great qualifying events over the last few months to put our team together that will be going to Beijing. But today we're going to talk history and you know, as we said in the introduction, uh, Art, you are truly uh, the walking textbook on biathlon. Uh, we're going to talk a lot today uh, of things that come from your book, Unique and Unknown, The Story of Biathlon in the United States, which came out just three years ago now this, this month. So we appreciate you taking the time to give us a little bit of insight into the history of biathlon. So thanks for joining us on Heartbeat. Oh, you're welcome. I'm glad to be here. So before we get into biathlon itself, let's talk about you, because you have really have a fascinating history growing up in New Paltz, New York, as a runner. Give us a little background on how you got involved in sport as a young man in New York. 
Well, it was um, kind of interesting. Uh, I always was interested in sports, even as a young boy. But in high school, I became a very good runner. And part of the reason for that was uh, we lived up on the mountain here in New Paltz near Mohunk. My father worked for the big hotel there. And we had a two-mile walk to get home every day from the school bus, uphill. Usually, we got a ride down in the morning, though. So it wasn't uphill both ways. But it turned out that it was very helpful when I joined the track team as a freshman, and I instantly became a very good distance runner. By the time I graduated, I had gone to the state meet and uh, actually got a college scholarship for running, but it was in Kentucky. Now, that doesn't look very good for the skiing, but I did start skiing at a local club in Rosendale, New York, which is where the first U.S. biathlon championships were held. And I was familiar with biathlon because as a, as a junior racer, I did some racing at the, at the, with the Rosendale Nordic Ski Club. And I also worked on uh, the local ski hill, Bontecue, up at Mohonk for alpine skiing. So I had some ski experience, but going to Kentucky didn't leave much for much time for skiing. But after I graduated, I came back and I got a job teaching uh, local locally. And I got really back into ski racing because in those days, late 1960s, there wasn't much running for ex-college runners. So I became more and more interested in skiing and did quite well at it. At the end of the 1960s, the war in Vietnam was going pretty strongly. And all of a sudden in 1970, President Nixon decided that there would be no more occupational deferments and they drafted me in my second year of teaching. But during basic training, they found out that I was quite a good runner. I had set the, the mile record for the combat boot run in basic training at Fort Dix. A combat boot run? Oh, yes. The, the physical fitness test in those days required you to run in your combat boots and uniform. And, uh, and uh, you know, I was, I was quite exceptional. And uh, th that was something that most people couldn't do. And uh, Walter Williams, who was involved with biathlon, uh, called the secretary of the Armed Forces Sports Branch down in Washington and said, you have another one of my skiers down there. Because two of the club members before me had been to Alaska, the Army's biathlon training unit. And so right out of basic training, I got orders to report to Fort Richardson, Alaska, to be part of the U.S. biathlon team. So in a sense, when I say it, I think I could say biathlon found me. I didn't really find biathlon. That's a fascinating story. Did you have marksmanship experience? Had you done some shooting before then? Very, very little. As a matter of fact, the only time that I really ever shot a rifle was one when Ed Williams, uh, Walter Williams' son, who was a 1968 Olympian in biathlon and had been to the training unit, uh, took me out with another friend with his biathlon rifle and we shot it. Now, he and I were training together in the summer uh, between when he graduated from Dartmouth College and when I graduated from high school. Uh, and uh, that was the only time I ever shot the biathlon rifle. And, uh, of course, they were immediately impressed because I hit the target right center mast. And, but unfortunately, I didn't know about earplugs and I couldn't hear for a week. So when you were in Alaska, did you have a little bit more intensive training, though, on the range? Yes, of course. Uh, the minute I got there, um, the coach at the time said, oh, I'm glad you don't have much experience outside of shooting in basic training, which I scored as an expert. He said, I don't have to unlearn the bad habits and I can teach you from the start. 
So they did. And, and I had a very good, I had very good progress right off the bat with the shooting there. And, uh, you know, the, the coaching was excellent. Yeah, I'm always amazed. Uh, and, and one of the things that's most fascinated me in meeting today's modern biathletes is the different pathways from which they've come into the sport. And most all of them have some form of ski background, but how they come into shooting is is all a little bit different. And of course, we are getting some more military involvement now with the support of the National Guard, which has been really instrumental for our programs. Uh, but when you were up in Alaska, you were with the Biathlon Training Center. What was the motivation for the military at that point to get into uh, biathlon itself with the combination of skiing and shooting? Was there a strategic direction that they were pursuing? Well, it goes back to the original uh, reason for them to even have a biathlon team, and that was following World War II. There was a competition in Europe amongst, well, ski competitions in Europe amongst the European nations and uh, most of the, most of the uh, army and, and air force divisions that were stationed there. And that gradually branched off into SISM Games, which is the World Military Championships. Now, we, the U.S., joined SISM in 1948. And so the original purpose was just to field teams for those competitions. But as time, as time went by, it became more of a public relations uh, effort, simply because putting soldiers on the Olympic team was very good publicity for the Army. And uh, that's what it ended up becoming. And it's also probably the, the main reason behind the National Guard's participation in the sport in today's world. So when you left the military and went back into civilian life, you continued to compete and continued to use those skills that you learned to become a biathlete. Yes, most of the athletes, uh, most of them that were there during my time and even before my time, once they left the Army, uh, they continued to do the sport for a period of time simply because of the uh, possibility of going to the Olympics or World Championships. There was no support, so you had to pretty much do it on your own. But you had the skills that the Army had given you while, while we were training in Alaska. And uh, for the few years that you could manage to do it on your own as an amateur, you would continue to participate. You had an Olympic experience in 1980 at Lake Placid. Tell us about that and what that meant for you. Well, I, uh, I had tried out for the Olympics twice in 1972 and then again in 1976 and had basically missed, missed it just barely each time. So uh, in 1978, with a growing family and uh, a need for employment and so on, I, uh, I decided to end my time on the national team and go on to life. But uh, since I had uh, earned coaching certification in Norway, I was, I was asked if I would be the coach. That was in 1978. So I uh, agreed and I became the national team coach. And uh, for those few years, it led to being the coach on the Olympic team. And of course, that was a great experience. Uh, anyone that's been to the Olympics will tell you it's a great experience, whether you're an athlete, coach or whatever. It's just an, an environment that, you know, is, is almost unique in its own right, simply because they're, they're there, you're there for competition, but there's also many other things that happen as friendships develop and so forth. Do you have any particular memories that you can share from 1980? I mean, you're so right on the, the, the 
it sticks with you for your life for your lifetime. And this was an opportunity to showcase biathlon in front of the American audience. But do you have any particular memories or friendships that you made then that you carry with you today? Well, I had lived in Norway between 1973 and 1976. So for me, it was a a reunion of sorts with many of those competitors and friends that I had made in Norway that were involved with the sport. But there's also a lot of other stories that happened that people aren't aware of uh, behind the scenes. And one of the things was, for example, we were all excited because... ABC, which televised the games th- that year, decided that they were going to showcase biathlon by, sh- by showing live the 10-kilometer 10, 10 sprint race, which was a new event. It hadn't been done that long, and it was really the first event that would could be really tele- televised with excitement because of the immediate response targets. In other words, they had changed from paper targets to the steel ones, and everybody got excited. And just as we were zeroing and getting ready and warming up, the power in the entire town failed. And we looked up and saw the big scoreboard go blank. Everyone looked around and said, what's happening? Well, they couldn't televise it. And then gradually they ended up showing instead warming up or, or skating practice at the ice arena. And But we had the race. It went on as planned because everything had battery backups for the scoring and so forth, just no television, which was very disappointing. And of course, it took years before they showed another live event. That is so crazy. I mean, that just you think that just couldn't happen today. But there were a lot of interesting things that happened in Lake Placid. So let's go back in time now, Art, and talk about the origins of biathlon. And you know, take us back a thousand years to Scandinavia and and the early days, at least in recorded history as we know it, of skiing and hunting and gathering on skis, on snowshoes in some places. Uh, but give us a sense of the origins that eventually led to this sport of biathlon. Well, that's an interesting question, and it also leads led to why I wrote the book. Just quickly, as we were standing at the Olympic House at Pyeongchang, John Morton and uh, Peter Carnes and uh, one of the other board members, we were standing in a circle and someone walked up to us and looked at our tags around our neck and said, oh, biathlon, you guys are from biathlon. And we kind of nodded and he said, and his, his response was, whoever invented that sport? And we all looked at each other and, and thought, what? And so I had to tell him, that this, this sport is probably one of the oldest that you can think of because there are cave paintings in Norway that date back 10,000 years of a skier with a bow and arrow on, on snow. And as, as I explained to that person, you know, this sport has a very utilitarian background because people needed to eat in prehistoric times. And so they had to get around on snow and also be accurate with their, with their uh, weapon. And, of course, that's where it really started. Then there is, of course, the Norwegian sagas and so forth that speak about soldiers on skis during the Scandinavian wars and the, uh, in the first millennium and so forth. But it really got its basic movement in the military in the 1700s when the Norwegian and Swedish armies and Finnish armies all practiced maneuvers on skis. And the very first recorded ski race in history is a biathlon race from 1747, which was organized by the Norwegian army. 
And uh, it was basically the same in principle as it is today, although they were using musket rifles and things like that. Um, but that's really where it started. And it grew from there. Uh, it became, you know, a method of warfare, if you will. So they practiced biathlon in a general sense for, for the nation's uh, defense. Well, later on, um, after, you know, even before World War I, they started doing what they called military patrol race, races. Military patrols were basically guarding the borders between the Scandinavian nations. And they usually consisted of an officer and an NCO or, or sergeant and then a couple of soldiers that went along. And they would ski along the borders as patrol. And eventually someone decided, oh, well, let's do patrol races. And so that's the development of the patrol race. They started doing that well before the Olympics. And when the first Olympics, Winter Olympics was held in 1924, the patrol race was one of the events. And uh, they did that in the, all of the early Olympics up until 1948. They did not do it in Lake Placid in 1932, but uh, they did after 1948, uh, there was somewhat of an anti-war sentiment because of course they had just ended World War II they decided to drop that sport. But there was always a sense of uh, having a multi-sport discipline similar to what the decathlon or pentathlon were in the summer games. And at first there was pushes to develop some kind of multi-ski event or multi-winter event that included ice skating, skiing, and, and so forth. Uh, there were several different attempts, especially by the Swiss, to come up with some idea, but each of them had many drawbacks because of the space needed, the time needed, and so on and so forth. What really helped biathlon was uh, the SISM Games, first of all. They were also um, started in 1948, and they had an individual biathlon race that, that mostly, you know, even in our, even our nation began participating in the, in the middle 1950s. This particular event evolved into a modern, uh, similar to the modern day event. When the Olympics were de designated to go to 1960 in Squaw Valley, there was a problem because they weren't going to be able to hold the, the uh, sliding races, the bobsled and, uh, and uh, skeleton and all those kinds of things. And so they were looking for some kind of alternative. Well, fortunately, Sven Tofelt, who was an Olympic medalist in the pentathlon, decided, hey, why don't we try to develop this sport of biathlon and use that as an alternate? And, uh, you know, so therefore, in order to prepare for that, they held the first World Biathlon Championships in 1957 and 58 and 59. And of course, it was eventually, that eventually led to being added to the, to the Olympic Games in 1960. Let, let's go back, though, for a minute uh, to, to the 1924 Olympics, which were the very first Winter Games. And the whole concept of the Winter Games had been a little bit controversial with the Scandinavians. But ultimately, they did hold this Winter Festival of Sport in Chamonix. And there were very few events. And uh, there was no alpine skiing yet at that point. There was cross-country, and there, there was ski jumping, and there was biathlon. But in the lead-up to 1924, what was the discussion with the International Olympic Committee on that, that resulted in military patrol, which we know today as biathlon? How did that actually get into the 1924 Games? 
You know, I'm not exactly sure, but they were essentially looking for all kinds of events to put in the in the Winter Games, including ski during where the people would uh, ski, follow a horse on skis and, and every, anything that had to do with winter. But this one seemed particularly interesting because all the nations in Europe were already doing this in their militaries. So they thought, well, let's let's try this. I mean, and of course, all of the teams. I mean, the first the first uh, military patrol race was won by the Italians. So it's it's uh, it was something that generated actually quite a lot of uh, enthusiasm because it had all the aspects of. Of, of defense, uh, and most of all, the the endurance. The, those races took place. They they took over four hours, in most cases. Even though they, um, you know, they had to stop and shoot and so forth. They were quite a, quite quite difficult, because they also skied in military uniforms. Did we have any Americans in that first Olympics with biathlon? No, we didn't. And we didn't have any of any teams in the uh, Olympic Games when they did the military patrol race. The Americans never fielded uh, a military patrol race in those early, early Olympic Games. And what was the reason for that? They just wasn't a, just wasn't a part of the program? Yeah, biathlon hadn't really developed at all in this country at that time. Uh, although the 10th Mountain Division was the one that really got bi- biathlon started in the United States, that didn't take place until the late 1940s. Uh, it's interesting that the man who really is responsible for starting biathlon was one of the Finnish officers who escaped from Finland under Soviet control and was assigned to the 10th Mountain Division. And uh, it's interesting, too, because his son later became a, a, a three-time Olympian uh, in both biathlon and in cross-country. So he came and brought the principles that they had used in Finland to the 10th Mountain Division. When he got there, most of the emphasis was on alpine skiing. Uh, and he he insisted that, you know, th- there was going to be always limited fu- limited opportunity for that kind of uh, skill in, in warfare. But cross-country skiing or biathlon had a lot more practicality. He eventually wrote the Winter Warfare Doctrine for the U.S. Army and was responsible for starting the first biathlon races as training at Camp Hale in Colorado. Yeah, and that was Colonel Laden Perry? Yes, it was, Colonel Laden Perry. He was one of the famous 40, 40 soldiers who escaped Soviet captivity and, and joined the U.S. Army. You know, this is diverging a little bit, but I wonder if you could tell us about the winter war between Finland and Russia in the late 30s. Uh, it is just a fascinating piece of history in which skiing actually played a vital role for the Finns. Yes, it did. Uh, as a matter of fact, there were two sa- two stages to the wars between Finland and Russia. The first one was in thirty nine, and then the second one uh, a little bit later. But uh, the Soviets tried to invade Finland with their tanks and 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 heavy equipment and so forth. And the small Finnish army had really not much power to fight that. But they they chose to use their skiers and uh, did such. Kind of guerrilla tactics on on skis, where they would ski in and uh, attack the the, the the large Soviet components, and then ski off. the The ratio was for every one soldier that the Soviets killed, that soldier had essentially killed ten Soviets. 
One of the more famous things is that the Soviets would drive their tanks sometimes onto the Finnish lakes. Well, the Finns had had a good knowledge of the terrain, and and the, the they would blow up the ice and sink the tanks. Eventually, though, the Soviet power, mostly air power, was able to subdue the the, the uh, Finns and. Uh, but uh, several, you know, like I, I said earlier, 40 of these officers and, and senior enlisted escaped their captivity and uh, eventually found their way into the U.S. Army. Yeah, there's some amazing stories. And I think many of us as Americans were familiar with the 10th Mountain Division and what was created there in Colorado that uh, fought in the latter stages of World War II. But there's so many other interesting stories that go into that. Let's let's take a look now at what I'll call maybe the rebirth of biathlons. So military patrol existed from Chamonix on. It didn't take place in Lake Placid, but it continued up, uh, I believe, through Garmisch and actually into the 48 Olympics in Samaritz as well, right? Yes. That was where they ended, uh, they ended the, the military patrol. And uh, Sven Tolfelt, who had become the president of the uh, pentathlon union, thought it was a, a shame, and he started to uh, move towards creating an individual event. And uh, he was very forceful about trying to replace the military patrol with an individual biathlon race and started in the middle 1950, early 1950s, developing it in Sweden. And uh, Sweden, Norway, and Finland began having Scandinavian championships in this individual biathlon race. That was really the start of it. But there was never any international federation for biathlon. So since it was military, basically in, in origin, they added it to the pentathlon union and it became the union of modern pentathlon and biathlon. And then he began pushing for its acceptance into the Olympic Games. What was some of the evolution of the rules? Uh, we all know biathlon today. But all of what we know today, including the sprint and how many targets you shoot and how many times you shoot, that all was also evolving in this period of time, wasn't it? Yes, it was. The original biathlon event had a 20-kilometer race with four stops of shooting at different distances. There were four different shooting ranges, one at 100 meters, one at 150, one at 200, and a, a long one at 250 meters. And shooting was from the prone position in, in all the longer distances, and they shot standing only once at the shorter 100-meter distance. And that made it difficult because you had to know how to change your sights for the different distances, how to judge the wind and the sun for different locations because the ranges weren't always pointing in the same direction. And, uh, of course, the skiing was uh, 20 kilometers long. And, and so... And also the target had a hit or a miss. And if you missed the target, it was two minutes penalty. And if you hit it, it was a simple black target. If you hit the target, you uh, it was good. And they counted the, the shooting results as hits or misses and added two minutes of penalty time for each one of your misses. Well, eventually that became difficult to arrange because you needed a lot of terrain, different ranges and so forth. So they eventually consolidated all the shooting down to one range with different distances. And eventually in 1965, they decided to go to the 150 meter distance with two stages of prone shooting and two stages of standing shooting. And that made it a lot more simpler 
for organization, which meant that civilian organizations could now put races on because prior to that, they were always done by the military somewhere on a military post where they had the terrain and the ranges and so forth. And then uh, it stayed that way. And, and there was still a lot of pressure from uh, people to get rid of biathlon. As a matter of fact, Avery Brundage, who was the uh, the IOC president through the years, commented always he did not like biathlon because it was too military. And, there, and all the people that were participating in it were in the military. And so he, he and on, on several attempts, tried to drop it from the games again. But each time it survived a vote and uh, managed to limp along uh, and, until uh, 1976, uh, he made another attempt to get rid of it. Well, Sven Tofeld decided, I'm not going to put up with this anymore. And he decided to encourage the shorter distance, 50-meter range, and, uh, and and that would include more nations because it would be so much easier to host a biathlon race at 50 meters than the other large board distance of 150 meters. Well, the participation rate for biathlon went from 16 nations in 1976 to over 30 in 1980. It was very difficult for Brundage or any of the Olympic Committee members to try to take biathlon out of the, out of the Olympics at that point. Because now biathlon had the largest participation of any winter sport. And with 30 nations, it hardly seemed reasonable to say that it didn't belong in the Olympics. And uh, so therefore, it just continued to grow. That's a fascinating story. And you know, when you think about it today, can you imagine what the sport would be like today if it was still on a 150-meter range? Yes, it would have probably limped along, maybe survived, maybe maybe it would not have survived in the Olympic Games. Because one of the things that uh, Sven Tofelt was very, very clever about is that he made it become a spectator sport with the visible breakable targets and such things. They constantly made modifications that made the sport so exciting. And of course, there were also technical evolutions with the skiing and the rifles and so forth. I mean, skating and so forth made it so much more, so much faster. Were there any interesting stories that came out of 1960 when it came back into the Olympics with this new format? Uh, did people look at it as, hey, this is going to be a great winter Olympic sport for the future? Yeah, there, there, there were a lot of, there were some editorials in the newspapers that thought that this was going to be a sport that was worth televising because, you know, it, it was, it was something unique, something different. And, uh, you know, everyone was excited about it. It was, it, but it, it didn't seem to really take off in the United States. It took off in Europe much, much faster than here. And, uh, so therefore it wasn't until, the next Olympics, 1964, that began to get a little more, a little more interest, and and each year the interest began to grow, and as the sport evolved, became faster, more exciting, more televisable, so to speak, it became more and more popular, and uh, I think today uh, it's growing very very quickly in the United States. I mean, I've seen it grow from the few guys that did it in Alaska. There were no other biathlon races in the, the year except for the trials for the team that would go to the world championships. In 1973, when, this was, when I first went to my first world championships, I did five biathlon races that year. Uh, 
four trials races at Lake Placid, and then the the then the World Championship race in Lake Placid. Five races. You can't develop skiers and a program without that kind with that limited opportunity. And it was the reason that I moved to Norway because in the following year, in 1974. When I came home for the trial races in the United States, I had already done 12 races in Norway. So I felt a tremendous advantage by having that. And of course, training with the Norwegians uh, was, was, was a delight because I learned so much more about the sport and how to do the sport and, and make the friendships in it and so on. It was, it was a great time. Well, Art, this has been a fascinating look back in history at the origins of biathlon. I want to bring you back to modern times for uh, just a minute as we uh, wind up this episode of Heartbeat. Uh, But we have the Olympics coming up in Beijing, a lot of mystery surrounding it because there really hasn't been much for test events. Uh, You, I know, will be glued to the television and probably at all hours of the day watching the sport. But any tips for those who want to watch the uh, uh, the Olympics in Beijing? Things to look for, stars uh, in the sport right now that are that are important to biathlon. Uh, I th- I think there's a there's going to be a lot of excitement uh, in biathlon uh, because more and more people are beginning to understand how exciting it is. And uh, watching the sprint races or watching, or especially the relay races or the pursuit or the mass start races, where you can see immediately how shooting will impact the result or not. Those are the things that are most exciting about it. It's, it's more than just skiers passing by. They'll come to the range, they'll shoot. Some will have to do penalty loops. Some will go back out onto the course. So the, the leader of the race will change. It makes for a very exciting mix. I, I think that uh, it'll be a, a little disappointing to not have the crowd behind the, the athletes. I mean, that's a tremendous drive and, and also a tremendous push around the excitement of a race. I mean, when you see these World Cup races previously before uh, they disallowed spectators, it was a very exciting event. It was like going to the Super Bowl and hearing people cheer for their for their players. That's how exciting it is for the Europeans. And I think it's becoming that way now. I mean, for years and years, biathlon always existed in small little locations around the country where, where there was skiing and uh, people got involved with Nordic skiing and, and they'd heard about biathlon and gave it a try. I think it's becoming more and more widespread. We have biathlon ranges all, all across the country now and young athletes getting involved. And I think that we have become a player on the world scene in biathlon. And uh, now we just have to go and hopefully win an Olympic medal. And that, that's what I think everyone's going to be hoping for. We'll be watching the U.S. athletes very, very closely. Art, you've been involved in the sport of biathlon for over 50 years now. You are on the U.S. biathlon uh, board uh, you've been right on the front lines of the sport. There really is a exciting buzz the last few years about the sport. Is there anything that you can point to that has really helped biathlon turn a corner and pick up more popularity here in the United States? One of the things that I think has really changed the dynamics of the U.S. participation in biathlon is the leadership that we have uh, in the U.S. Biathlon Association. Uh, we can't say enough about Max Cobb and our coaches over the last couple of Olympic cycles. We've had great coaching and we've had great leadership. And uh, of course, uh, all of those things are what's important. 
Uh, and of course, what what counts most is the support, financial support, which is now becoming a reality. For years and years, we had to do it on our own. We had to pay for the bullets we shot, everything, the transportation. But now the athletes can focus on their training with good coaching without having to worry. I mean, there's still always a worry, but they don't have to worry about how they're going to find the car insurance and how they're going to pay for the gasoline and so forth anymore. Those things are out of their out of their consciousness, and they're totally focused on their sport, which is the way any professional athlete has to has to be. Well, Art, this has been a fascinating look, and we're going to close it out now with a section that we call "On Target." Just a series of some short final questions to kind of test your memory a little bit. Uh, but to start it out, Art, do you have a particularly memorable U.S. biathlete from the past? whose name you want to bring forward. Uh, so let's go back into that early period of the sport. One of those stars from maybe 30, 40, or even 50 years ago that you want to highlight for us. Well, there's a few. I mean, it's hard to say, but one of the things that I think was totally unique was Peter Laudenpera. He, uh, he was an individual who qualified for two different Olympic games in both cross-country skiing and in biathlon. And he did it in 1964 by having to travel between West Yellowstone, Montana, and Spout Springs, Oregon, and on, on consecutive days. So he would race a biathlon race in Montana, go to Idaho Falls, get on an overnight train, sleeping on the train, get off the train and take another a long drive to Spout Springs, race the cross-country race, then turn around and do the whole thing backwards. And he did that for the four, four or five days for, that he had to do those races and ended up qualifying for both of those teams. There are a lot of really, really uh, interesting stories about some of our athletes in the past. And, and one of the really nice ones, too, is, of course, is when the women won the first medal for the uh, U.S. program in 1984 at the first Women's World Championships. That was a real highlight. And, of course, it began really things rolling for our team. I think it was... A, a dynamic change, the fact that we had women who were capable of meddling. And, uh, of course, it gave gave the men something to shoot for. And not long afterwards, Josh Thompson did the same thing. So uh, there are a lot of, lot of people that I would love to, to talk about. But, uh, you know, that's, that's in the book. It is in the book. I'm going to throw one back out at you because you've talked a lot about her to me, and that is Marie Alkir, who uh, I believe is being honored in the Biathlon Hall of Fame coming up in March. Yes, Marie was our was our first was our first women's coach, and really the first women biathlon coach internationally. She she was the coach on the 1984 Olympic team, and she led those women to the bronze medal in 1984. And uh, yes, we are going to honor her by uh, inducting her into the Hall of Fame, and uh, she certainly deserves it. And uh, she changed she changed a lot of things about the way we thought about biathlon. I, I would just like to say that before Mary, we always thought about biathlon as a ski race with shooting added to it. And you know, the first thing that we always did when we were finished the race was try to look at the ski time and see how fast we skied. And then we'd, we'd, we would immediately subtract the penalty minutes and say, oh, look at I skied this fast. But she changed our, our attitudes on that. And she taught us that biathlon is one event with two parts to it and that you have to look at the whole rather than the parts. 
and uh, it changed our uh, approach to things. She was very good at at, at uh, figuring out what was needed and what was most helpful. Art, I asked this question of all of the athletes who were on, so I'll ask it of you too. Do you have a particular venue anywhere in the world, any biathlon venue that's particularly important to you as an historian and an archivist of sorts of the sport? I liked Anholz, Italy, probably better than any of the other World Cup venues. It was where I had my best world championships, and it was a beautiful location. I mean, just gorgeous. And uh, if anyone wants to go to a World Cup, I suggest go to that. Well, it was on my schedule for this year, but now, unfortunately, COVID is keeping me home. But we're going to have that action from Antholz coming up here uh, this coming weekend. Uh, last question, and I know a lot of people stumbled over this one, but if you had to sum up your experience in biathlon and what it means to you in just one word, what would that one word be to describe biathlon? I'd ha- I have to use two, two words. I'd have to say, it's been my life. My life. I'll take that one. That's a good one. It's great to have that as a life. And, and, and Art, I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time. You have uh, educated me quite a bit, and I'm sure our listeners as well. This really is a fascinating history, isn't it? Yes, it is. And, uh, you know, I like I said earlier, biathlon found me. I never expected to spend my life with biathlon, but it was such an interesting and exciting sport. I just enjoyed it for the whole time. Art Stegen, the book is Unique and Unknown, the story of biathlon in the United States. You can get it at Amazon or pretty much anywhere you get books. Art, thank you for joining us on Heartbeat and uh, hope you enjoy the rest of the season. Yes, let's hope that the Olympics go well for us. Thanks to Art Stegen for bringing us back in time. What a great episode. Look for his book at Amazon.com or other booksellers. It is called Unique and Unknown, The Story of Biathlon in the United States. And watch for our episode coming next week as we preview the Beijing Olympic Winter Games with another biathlon legend, Chad Samla of NBC. Chad will be coming to us from Europe as he commentates on the final IBU World Cup biathlon events before the Games. He'll give us his thoughts on who to watch as well as insights into the NBC and Peacock broadcast schedule. We hope you're enjoying Heartbeat as we tell the story of America's biathletes. You can help us by sharing the link to the podcast on your social media channels and also telling your friends to listen in. Remember to subscribe to Heartbeat on your favorite podcast platform to get every episode delivered direct to you. And leave a review if you can. I'm your host, Tom Kelly. Thanks for listening to Heartbeat, the U.S. Biathlon Podcast. Hey. Hey. Hey.